0: Uh, today, we are in part 15 of our study in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're calling it for the series, The Gospel According to Isaiah. And uh, this morning, we will be spending our time in chapters 17 and 18. So I invite you to turn there or swipe there, uh, whatever you're following along in this morning. If you have nothing to follow along with, we do have Bibles in the back. I strongly encourage you to grab that Uh, because I can't emphasize enough how vital it is to just have the Bible open and the text in front of you while we study this book. Because We cover a lot of text uh, with a lot of names and places, and if you don't have the word open, uh, it's definitely easy to get lost. And uh, I don't want that to happen, because it would help me if you had the text there. So, turn there. Before we dive into that, let's just do a little uh, recap and remind ourselves of some important contextual Items from, uh, from this book so far. Pastor Lou has reminded us, uh, multiple times that I, Isaiah is split into three, three major sections. At least that's how we are, we are navigating it. Chapters 1 through 39, chapters 40 to 55, and chapters 56 to 66. And we are still here in section 1, uh, where we are introduced. We were introduced to Isaiah, and we're introduced to some of the issues surrounding God's people at the time. Uh, there's a divided nation. You have Israel in the north. You have Judah in the south. Uh, that's going to be important for today to remember that that Judah and Israel are separate, uh, as our as our text deals much with with Israel. And uh, Israel is is in the north, conspiring with other nations, namely Syria, uh, forgetting their God. And in Isaiah six. Uh, we saw, we saw this, this holy, holy, holy God of the universe come to Isaiah and call him. And Isaiah's initial response in that calling, uh, and being in such the, the presence of, of righteousness and perfection and holiness is to, to say glory, uh, to say, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Just ask me if I want to translate that into another language. I'm good. (laughs) That was weird. I hope it picked it up on the mic. That'd be funny. Um, Anyway, (laughs) he says, I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And if you remember in that moment... Isaiah receives this abundance of grace as the seraphim come down and, and flies down and touches Isaiah's mouth with this coal in his hand and says, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And it's after this reception of grace that Isaiah is then commissioned. He's sent out to deliver God's message to the people. But they will not listen. It says they all keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. It's not exactly the world's most uh, appealing job offer, but Isaiah seeks to be faithful to serve the Lord. And uh, we see in these opening 12 chapters of the book uh, that the people's hearts are being hardened towards God. God has been all but forgotten, but we know that it will not remain that way. And we see this as Isaiah delivers these oracles in, in chapters 13 where we were all the way through chapter 23. And that's kind of in the middle of that section is where we're at today as God demonstrates very much His presence through this judgment on the nations surrounding His people. And as Pastor Lou said uh, last week, maybe even the week before that, the destruction of God's enemy means the salvation for His beloved children. And we'll really see that this morning as we look at these, these texts. God dealing justly with those who are opposed to him is his grace to his people as he reveals himself to them and provides a means for them to fix their eyes on him once again. We're going to get a big sense of that in chapter 17 and 18. So, and that's why, uh, the title of the sermon for today is the finite glory of man and the infinite glory of God. Because we will see this morning that placing our trust in the securities of man will only last for so long. The glories of of man's achievements will only be in the spotlight for so long until God reveals himself boldly and receives the glory reserved only for him. And it's through that lens that we will be uh, navigating this text. So let me skip over the 17, 18 slide. So this is how we're going to look at it. We have two, two sections, obviously with subpoints, as you see there. Um, the finite glory of man and the infinite glory of God. It's pretty easy to remember. It's the title and the points. I was not surprisingly creative with anything in, as far as outlining goes. So if you walk away with one thing, you remember man's glory is finite, God's glory is eternal. So we'll take it one sub point at a time. So turn, hopefully you're there already. Isaiah 17, we'll look at verses 1 through 3 as we look at the the judgment of Damascus, the judgment of Syria, verses 1 through 3. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim, Ephraim, and the kingdoms from Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Last week we looked at Philistia and Moab, who were these enemies of Judah um on the on the east and west side of of them. And here now we have these these cities of Damascus and Aurora which are a part of Syria, as well as as Ephraim, which is another term for Israel, the northern kingdom. So we're looking north of Judah in these oracles. So we're kind of going in a very geographic type um look at all these how these oracles are described. And if you remember Syria was a major enemy to Judah. This is going to be a little repetitive, but it was chapter 7 we went over it, so I think it's important to understand uh, as we look through this text. Because Israel had actually teamed up with Syria, right? And, and they went down to Jerusalem to wage war on King Ahaz in Judah. Now, they were not victorious in taking out Ahaz, but did manage to take another city, which was absorbed into Syria. And this little team up between Syria and Israel seemed like a really good strategy. Um, they had high aspirations for the team up. And it reminds me of the final season of Seinfeld. Yes, this is going to be a real reach. But if I don't do it, I will hear about it. So it reminds me of the final season of Seinfeld when, when George Costanza is given three months severance from the Yankees. And he says, this is going to be the summer of George. And he talks about all he's going to do. Maybe play some frolf, frisbee golf. And he's very excited. He's pumped. And then when it was supposed to be the summer of George, he accidentally slips on an invitation in a later episode, falling down the stairs, legs going to a state of atrophy. stuck in the hospital bed. And he's just sitting there going, this was supposed to be the summer of George. This was supposed to be the summer of George for Israel and Syria. They had a good alliance. Except Judah went up to the bigger nation of Assyria who came down and dealt with the problem. And in 1732, Syria ends up going to Damascus and taking over that city, which was a major city. And ten years later, Assyria goes down to Samaria, the capital of Israel, and takes that city. This Syrian domination of these two major cities is what this oracle is pointing us to this morning in the passage. Syria had, had great pride in their capital. It was an important city. It was flourishing. It was vibrant. And we see in these opening verses, it will become a heap of ruins. Nothing to be admired. Nothing to find refuge in. Complete devastation. In the cities of Aurora, in the, the southern part of Samaria, Isaiah says, will be deserted. It says... It'll be a place for flocks to lie down without any fear. None will make them afraid. Why would they be without fear? Because there's no one there. You know, when we think of the peaceful bliss of of these flocks laying down in clear pastures, we think peaceful. Well, this is peaceful because all has been wiped out. There's no one left. That's pretty bleak for that city. And what about Israel in this? Well, verse three tells us, and the fortresses will disappear from Ephraim. Ephraim, I keeps doing that. It's going to happen. They're going to call him Israel. The fortress will disappear. The Assyrians took over that capital the same way they took over Syria's capital. No more. No more were these cities uh, points of pride for either of these nations. They were trophies for the mighty Assyrians. Verse 3 continues, that the kingdom of Damascus and the remnant of Assyria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Now that doesn't sound so bad. Glory. Glory's good. We like glory. But the thing is, is what glory does Israel and Assyria possess at this point? Their capitals are gone. Their nations are shrinking. The... Their glories are similar in the sense that they're they're both just diminishing significantly. They're the same in that they really don't have any more glory. It's like telling the New York Giants, your glory is going to be like that of the Jets. <laughs> yes! So you're telling me there's a chance. There's no pride to be had in that. The glory of man is finite. See, Syria and Israel, they put their eggs all in one basket of 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 finding their strength in themselves, of glorifying themselves in their alliance and trusting in their own strength, relishing in their own abilities, and that glory was being stripped away. We see in verses four to six as we look at the, the judgment of Israel, it continues And in that day the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain and his arm harvests the ears. And as one gleans the ears of grain from the valley of Rephaim, gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten. Two or three berries in the top of the highest bow, four or five on the branches of the fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. Dr. John Oswald, as he summarizes Israel's self glory he, he does it well and he says the concept of glory in hebrew carries with it the connotations of permanence abundance significance and real and reality the glory of jacob as shared by syria will be none of these god will expose the world to the glory of israel which he has achieved through her own strength that it is nothing more than a fraud says the glory of Jacob will be brought low. How low? Well, Isaiah uses three images to describe it for us. First he says the fat of his flesh will grow lean. Israel would go from this place of being full-bodied, as the expression goes, to being skin and bones. And to have much fat and much muscle back then, would have been representative of abundance and prosperity. And to lose that would mean they're, they're no longer a prosperous nation as they once were. They're becoming malnourished. It's not a healthy leaning. It's becoming this skin and bones reality. They're going from looking like Christian Bale in Cheney to Christian Bale in The Machinist. And if you don't know the reference, you can Google it after Google it now, I won't know. But it's a pretty drastic change if you Google that. Batman, even Batman, though he's jacked and Batman. A little more plump and shame. Um. But that's what Israel's fall was like. This drastic change. Prosperity to nothing. And then verses 5, it continues in another illustration. It uses this, this images of, of harvesting to illustrate what will become of Israel. The reapers, they will, the reapers will come to harvest the grain and the ears, and they will take most of it, yet some gleanings will remain. Or as one who picks olives, they'll strip the tree of, of pretty much everything, but there'll be a few remaining on the top and on the lower branches. And these images, they paint for this picture of, of like, it's a house cleaning. Israel's physical size and glory will be virtually eliminated. It's not total obliteration. There's a few things left, but it will feel like utter defeat. Though Syria and Israel, they were enemies of Judah, the, the people of Judah weren't necessarily receiving this prophecy because they're, the, they're the, the, the people Isaiah was speaking to. They're not receiving this prophecy as, as good news per se for them. But, th- but this was a warning to Judah. Don't align yourself with Israel and Syria. Don't chase fleeting glories as they did. Fix your eyes on God. Look to Him for strength and protection. Or this will be the same result. One day, mankind will fix their eyes on their Maker. You see that in verses... Seven and eight. It says, Isaiah continues, he says, in that day, man will look to his maker. His eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. So what is all the, the purpose of the destruction in, in verses one through six? Why would God use Syria to bring them down so low? Well, these verses illustrate it for us. In the midst of having everything stripped away, to having nothing of their own to cling to, where else can they look? They are forced to look to their Maker. Forced to look on to the Holy One of Israel. Their eyes are being shifted from the things of man the altars, the man-made objects, these, these Canaanite fertility idols, the Asherim, and they're moved to their Maker. The ultimate Maker who created not with his hands, but rather spoke everything into being from nothing. The one who they should have been putting their trust in from the beginning. And verse 7 doesn't just say Israel will look to His Maker. No, the, the, the word that Isaiah uses here is, is man. It's a very broad term. Adam in the Hebrew. Right? The, the scope of this prophetic statement is, is much bigger than just Israel. Israel's front and center included, but Isaiah is saying one day all nations will turn their eyes and look to the Maker. And we know that. Revelation 21 points us to that when one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King and Lord. But in the immediate, these nations will be turned to their Maker. All who are left defeated will have no place else to look but to God Himself. In these verses, Isaiah has told us what happened this next Block of verses 9 through 11 tell us why it happened. Moving on to verses 9 through 11 here. The consequences of forgetting God. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them, and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. It's fun. In their judgment, Israel will, will. It says here they're going to look around. They're going to look to these these cities that at their cities, and they're going to suffer the same fate that the Canaanite cities that they once conquered back in the day look like. When he, when he says, uh, yeah. Their strong cities will be like the deserted places in the wooded heights and the hilltops. Those places in the wooded heights and the hilltops are these Canaanite cities that, that they conquered when they had God on them on their side. They're going to look around and see we're no different than them. And what's the difference? Well, back then, we were following the commands of God. We were, had God on our side. We had not forgotten Him. But now that they've chosen to put their trust in the things of man, they are suffering the same desolation as the Canaanites before them and now Syria with them. And Isaiah says, You have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. That's the reason for this desolation. Isaiah tells him, You've planted these really nice plants, you've imported some really nice ones. And even though you were able to make them grow really fast, and it looked beautiful right away, on the the morning that you sowed them, these plants will become a heap. They did what looked good. They trusted what was appealing, what was easy, what was quick, what seemed right in their eyes. They were in fellowship with nations that did not worship God, and rather, We know they were looking and worshiping those nations gods, and everything they built as a result of, of their best efforts will be stripped away. And a day of grief and incurable pain. No, it doesn't sound good. Incurable pain. there's great consequence to forgetting the God of their salvation. For not remembering the rock of refuge. And now when he says forget, it's not like when I forget to put dryer sheets in the dryer, which is quite often. It's not just a little like, oopsie, yeah, I forgot. Right? This This is a willful neglect of their God. You don't just forget. They have deserted their God and done what they wanted to do in order to pursue greener pastures. They did what was right in their eyes. And now they are reaping the fruits of what they have sown. They've built their house on shifting sand instead of the solid rock of Yahweh. And now it's coming out from underneath. And I just want to take a moment to just step outside the time and place of Isaiah and give us the opportunity to, to really look at ourselves because at this point it's really easy to say, yeah, Israel, that's what you get. Why would you do that? I can't believe you would do that. But how can we relate? Right? How do we forget God in our own lives? Right? When we're doing pretty good financially, things seem to be going pretty well. We're secure. Do we press in the gospel or do we just forget? Do we push it to the side? Our faith becomes this thing that's there cognitively, but we know that our security and our affection and everything we have is really rooted in what we have or what we can do. We start looking at the the quick-growing, pretty plants and forget the steadfast love and provision of God Himself. And when that typically happens, what usually has to take place to reorient us to God? Something catastrophic happens, right? The job that we had that was the pinnacle of all that we desired is lost. We lose a loved one that we admired so greatly. A relationship that we we're putting up at the biggest treasure of our life, crumbles and goes away. And in those moments, where do we find ourselves? It it fixes our eyes on what is truly important. See, when our false senses of security crumble around us, we're forced to look to our maker, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Because when those things are stripped away, where else can we? Now, and if we're a people that's preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the gospel regularly, of our identity in Christ and all that He has done, and that He would be the desire of our heart, that He is the object of our worship and He's the one we cling to, when we do that regularly, we see that stuff is just stuff. Our ultimate affection is found in Christ. Is money bad? Of course not. Is a job necessary? Yes. Are relationships a beautiful and wonderful thing? Absolutely. But when any of those things become the pinnacle of our attention, become all that consumes us, they become an an idol, they become our reason for living, that source of refuge will always fail us. That's putting our, our trust in the glory of man. Where is our attention? Where is our security? Where is our trust? I urge us, urge all of us, myself included. Let's not wait for something catastrophic to have to happen for us to fix our eyes on God. Sometimes that's, that's what we need. You may be hearing me flap my lips and go, gosh, this guy, is he done yet? What's his watch translating now? Sounds like blah, blah, blah to me. Don't wait for something catastrophic to happen. Fix your eyes on the Maker. Behold Christ who has redeemed us, saved us, brought us from darkness into light. The glory of man is finite. Let us keep our eyes fixated on the infinite glory of God. Now, before we look at this next section, the infinite glory of God, I just want to go over why I've kind of lumped the end of verse 17 in with chapter 18, just so it makes sense. Because in our Bibles, we see that the split in this oracle happens uh, at verse 14 of 17 and picks up in chapter 1 of 18. And in most of your Bibles, I'm sure there's a heading at the beginning of chapter 18 that says, an oracle concerning Cush. That's what it has here in my Bible. Um... However, in the, in the actual language, there's not necessarily this distinction as one thing has ended, another oracle has begun in that sense. Um, it, it follows the same content, the same theme throughout the end of 17 into 18. Uh, there's, there's a continuation of similar subject matter. Uh, so I'm treating 17 and 18 here, the end, just as this, these two chapters, like one big unit. Um, I'm not making that decision on my own. I'm not all of a sudden the smartest scholar to ever read the Bible. Many commentators have said the same thing. I'm like, that just makes sense. Um, So we see similar language, similar imagery, all of it's the same. So that's how we're going to treat it because we know that verse numbers and chapter numbers didn't exist when this was written. This was one big old scroll of prophecy. So um, with that said, just so you understand why I'm doing it, let's look at verses 12 to 14 here as we see the quieting of the roaring nations. And we see these sections, they start with this, Ah, ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but He will rebuke them. And they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and the whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they are no more. This, the portion of those who loot us, and for the lot of those who plunder us. Now when these passages start off with the word ah, which is the funny word to read, ah. Like oh, I get, but ah, eh. When he's saying this, is the same word that might be translated woe in some Bibles. So if you don't have an ESV, you might have a Bible. I think King James, New King James, maybe NASB might say woe. This isn't necessarily like a woe, like a woe is me kind of use of the word. This is almost similar to saying like behold. Like this is really important. Fix your eyes on this. So behold the thunder of many nations. That's the kind of Vibe we are getting from this text. He, and Isaiah wants to grab their attention as he's painting this, this picture of a loud and intimidating presence approaching. The thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering sea. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. This is that, this picture of, of something big coming. Remember on vacation a few years back, uh we were down in uh, Maryland and it was like hurricane type weather. I don't know if we were technically in a hurricane, but we're, like we were feeling like the effects of it. And like we went outside and went down to the water because that's always a smart choice. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it happened. Um and we went down there and I just what I can remember as we're down at the water like everything we're doing is like at a high volume That we're talking like there's no there's no regular talking voice. It's like we're down by this rushing water, the wind is whipping, and we basically had to what felt like yelling to communicate with each other the whole time we're out there because of the sheer volume of the waves. Maybe it was our own excitement. Eh, It could have been. But there's just if you've been to the ocean, you can just hear this this rushing sound of water, or like going to a place that has like these really awesome rapids. You can just hear the rushing of water. There's this force behind it. That's the picture Isaiah is painting for us. And it forces us to to ask the question, who is he talking about here? Who, Who are these people? What are these nations? Where are they going? And what he's referring to here is maybe not necessarily multiple nations, but one massive nation of Assyria, and he's using the phrasing nations because Syria would be representative of, of any nation that stands against God and his people. And Isaiah, uh, Syria, as we mentioned uh, many times, this is the powerhouse of, of the day. They were a huge nation. They clobbered anyone they came in contact with. They took Syria and Israel's capitals with no problems. They left them desolate wastelands. And Isaiah is now saying this wave is coming. Jerusalem which was in Judah the southern kingdom and he's using similar language to what we saw back in chapter 8 as God referred to Assyria as the waters of the river overflowing on to Judah that's the same language we see here as he describes this force but what does he say regarding this force he said the nations roar like the roaring of waters but he that is God, will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and the whirling dust before the storm. The deadly force, this massive force of water that's coming, is rendered as weak chaff as the Lord rebukes them. The mightiest nation is nothing in comparison to God. And as Assyria moves in at night, right, it says at evening, behold, terror. It says before morning, they are no more. When, when God steps in, the mightiest men by human standards are but dust. Blown away. They impose terror but are eliminated quicker than they even came in. You see the power and the glory of God. And when I say glory, I'm not just meaning worship, but when we see glory, it's actually this weightiness of God, this this strength, this power. There's power in God's glory. And when we compare the weightiness of man to the weightiness of God, God outweighs man every time. There's no contest. Man is but a speck of dust compared to God. In a few, uh, in chapter thirty-seven, we'll get there in a couple of years. Um, we'll see this play out. This this the story of Assyria coming into Judah. Because in Isaiah thirty-seven thirty-three to thirty-six, I can mention it now because you won't remember I ever said it once we get there. He says, "Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria." He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege and mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down a 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies, the mightiest of nations, pale in comparison to the God of the universe. So why should Judah hear this and, and, and really trust in the infinite glory of God rather than man? Because God can silence the 885,000 people in an instant. Think about that. The Bible says there's nothing impossible for God. There's nothing impossible for God. And that's why only He is of infinite glory and value and power. Move on to a message. I don't think I have the I don't think I have a slide for this one. Uh, a message to the nations, verses one through six. Uh, it wasn't intentional. It was clearly just forgotten. Um, but we'll look at verses one through six. If you have your, your Bible. And he continues another ah statement. Ah, the land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea and vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look when a trumpet is blown, hear! For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like a clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks. And the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and the beasts of the earth. And the birds of the prey will summer on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. So what we have happening here is messengers are coming from beyond the rivers of Cush. This would be in what we would know as modern-day Ethiopia, if that gives you a little geographic location of where they are, um, southwest of where uh, Judah was. They were people that were taller in stature. They were people that were not as hairy as those in the Near Eastern regions. I would not be described as a man tall and smooth. Quite hairy. But that's what they were. That's the the makeup. That's how they would have been recognized. But they were also a people feared because they too were a strong and powerful nation. And Cush had found an enemy in Assyria. So you have these two powerhouses that are kind of encroaching and coming closer and closer to each other. And they were on their way north, headed toward Judah in order to deal with Assyria. Possibly looking to make an alliance with Judah. And here Isaiah is actually telling Judah to, to go send messengers to them. Go meet them with a message. Don't wait for them to arrive. Go down to them. And tell them this message that is for all to hear. And in this, in this message, God lets them know He is always present, looking on. It says, I quietly look from my dwelling like a clear heat in sunshine. He may not be necessarily seen, but he is always present. He is always felt. He is unavoidable. Like the heat of the sun. We don't see the heat. We feel it. We know it's there. Quite absent today. But on a nice day, it's there like the cloud of dew at the time of harvest, right? Dew doesn't rain down, but dew is present. It's just there. It's on the ground in the morning, sometimes hovering like a fog. And as Assyria seems to be this force in the world, this ever-growing vine that is about to ripen into lush grapes, as we see described here, verses 5 and 6, They're growing and growing and growing. Indeed, this ever-present God will cut them down. And they will be left for the birds of prey and the animals to devour. And those hearing this message would get the point. The Assyrians who would have been hearing this who probably think they're a big deal. God is saying, I'm a bigger deal. I'm greater. And if you think you possess glory, I am infinitely more glorious. And he's telling the nations, this is what will happen if Assyria messes with God's people. And the world and all of its power will have, they didn't have the ability to stop Assyria. Assyria was coming in, they were conquering but God is the one who can cut them off before their plans come to fruition, and this is the message that Judah brought to this uh, the Cushites as they're on their their way up. And we see at the end of this chapter that the same people who are making their way to Judah would make their way up there once again, but this time not as as ambassadors preparing for conflict, but as worshipers. we go from this message of here's what will happen if you mess with God to, and here's the worship that's brought to God. Worship from the nations. And at that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts, from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide to Mount Zion, the place of the name of Lord of hosts. So these people who are feared near and far, who are mighty and conquering, are coming to present themselves as tribute to the God of the universe. They would come to recognize the infinite glory of God. Nations from all around would do the same. See, when God demonstrates His power and authority, the only fitting response is worship. Though our text today is telling of the events that, that's involving Assyria, it's also this, this foreshadow of the explosion of the gospel that happened uh, around the world hundreds of years later uh, in the days of the apostles we actually see, I'm going to fast forward us all the way up to Acts chapter 8 for a moment. As we see a worship come out of Ethiopia. Acts chapter 8, 26 to 39. It's It's a long passage, I'm just going to read the whole thing so we get it all. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of uh, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran over to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. That's from Isaiah 53. And the eunuch said to Philip, Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is the water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So just as the glory of God was seen amongst the nations in Isaiah's day, so did the glory of God through the Gospel spread throughout the world in the days of the apostles. Hundreds of years later, an Ethiopian makes his way to Jerusalem to worship God. From a people tall and smooth. People feared near and far. And on that journey, God sovereignly places Philip to preach to him the gospel, to give him the complete picture of God's salvation. It's incredible. And hearing that, he believes and is baptized and he rejoices. Undoubtedly bringing the news of all that Jesus has done to his people. And just as messengers from Judah, they brought this news to the Ethiopians of what God would do to their enemy, Philip brought good news of what has been done to the greatest enemy, the enemy of sin, to this Ethiopian. The good news that Christ was the one who suffered the ultimate punishment on the cross for the sins of the world. The good news that He is the risen King who has final word over sin and death. And that He has rendered it totally defeated. And what we see in Acts is how this message of salvation ripples like, like a drop in the water as it goes from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And what is the heart of the message? Sin will never be conquered by our own strength. We cannot trust in our own works for salvation. Salvation is through faith and trust in Christ alone. That He is the victorious one in whom we can trust, not ourselves. Does that sound familiar? Though we understand the gospel with greater clarity than the people did back when Isaiah was written, the message remained the same. It remains the same. We need to trust ultimately in God for our salvation. He alone can save. So I ask again, where is our trust this morning? Is it in all that we can do? Is it in our own strength and our own might and what we can accomplish, what we can provide for ourselves? Or will we put our faith and our trust in Christ? Because whatever it is that is giving you a sense of security today that isn't Christ will crumble Cast it before Him. Whether it's it's sin that's in your life or even a good thing that has become a sinful idol, surrender it to Christ. Repent, believe in the one true King of kings. That the one who, whose name one day every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord through the glory of God the Father. Let's not trust in the finite things of this world and our own securities and the finite glory of man. Let's trust in the only one with infinite glory. Jesus Christ. Bank and come up. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word this morning. We do pray and ask You to just help us see the beauty of Christ. Let us see all that He has done, all that He has accomplished. And let us just see how our own works pale in comparison. That we will never be able to do enough. We can't think of enough ways to try and earn our salvation. There's nothing that we can do that is entirely secure, but it's all within your sovereign hands. Help us to repent of those things that are are keeping us from you this morning. Fix our eyes on Christ. Help us remember our identity that if we have trusted and believed in Christ, we are no longer by nature, children of wrath, but now we are adopted sons and daughters in your family, a part of your kingdom. Help us to remember that and that we would not forget the God of our salvation. Pray that we would be a people, as we're about to say, that we would be a people who cling to Christ. And it's Him alone that we worship this morning. As in Jesus' name we pray.